This is Kara O'Cleef, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Our 2018 festival is scheduled for October 10th to 13th, and more information on the festival and other programming we have coming up this spring can be found at our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and particularly excited about our guests, YA authors L.M. Elliott and Caroline Tongue Richmond. L.M. Elliott has written several historical novels, and her latest, Hamilton and Peggy, comes out this month. Caroline Tongue Richmond is the author of the speculative historical novels, The Darkest Hour and The Only Thing to Fear. Her latest novel, Live in Infamy, will be out in March. Elliot and Richmond will both be at the Novatine Book Festival at Washington and Lee High School in Arlington on Saturday, March 10th. It's a free, day-long event packed with books, authors, and activities. And you can find more information and register for the festival at novatinebookfestival.com. But for now, I'm very excited to talk with L.M. Elliot and Caroline Tongue Richmond. Laura and Caroline, welcome, and thank you so much for coming out to chat today. Thank, thank you, you for, for having, having us. us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so just to get started, since you both have new books coming out, I wanted to ask if you could both just tell us briefly about what those books are. Well, I've been lucky enough to write about Peggy Schuyler of the Schuyler family in Hamilton. So it is Hamilton and Peggy, a revolutionary friendship. And it basically tracks Peggy's experiences during the Revolutionary War. She was in Albany most of the time and so was witness to some very cataclysmic events um, and her father's work as a spymaster and a general of the Northern Army. And of course, it's also about her relationship and friendship that developed very quickly with her soon to be brother-in-law, but it very much focuses on who she was and what she did. All right, that's great. Uh, and Caroline, what about Live in Infamy? So my next book is called Live in Infamy, and it comes out in March. It's actually a companion novel to my first book, The Only Thing to Fear. And both books are set in a world where the Axis powers won World War II and ended up colonizing the U.S. So The Only Thing to Fear was based on the East Coast under Nazi control, and Live in Infamy is based in California under Japanese control. And it follows a 16-year-old boy named Ren who grows up as a tailor in this small coastal town, but he ends up kind of finding himself in the middle of this rebellion and this undertaking the secret mission at a Japanese fortress. Really exciting. Uh, both of those sound really good. Were you both always interested in history as you grew up, since both of your novels deal with history, although in very different ways? Yeah, I, I've always been interested in history. I grew up in the D.C. area, and my dad loved taking us to all the museums and memorials on the weekends. But it wasn't really until high school where the passion really developed. I had an amazing history teacher my junior year named Mr. Besher, and he just made history so much fun and so interesting. He taught world history. And he came up with songs and little rhymes to remember historical figures. And it quickly became my favorite class. And it's because of him that I ended up majoring in history in college. I see it as kind of a starting point of becoming a historical writer. I have always been interested in history. I was not a history major, though. I was an English and journalism and music major. But I grew up in Fairfax County, and, and I'm old, so <laughs> I can remember the Vietnam War protests, the assassinations of the Kennedys. I was very, very young when President Kennedy was killed. But my heroes growing up were Woodward and Bernstein and the journalists. And so I always was fascinated by the human drama that history represents. You know, we learn all these dates and facts and 
wars and treaties and that kind of thing. But, you know, history was filled with very human reactions, uh, human stories and dramas of people having to make choices of how they were going to survive those events. And it's something I witnessed as a child. I also had the great pleasure of being in Fairfax City when it was still more of a small town. And I knew some amazing little old ladies who used to love to sit in their gardens with pink lemonade and tell stories of people who had survived World War II, World War One, those kinds of things. So I kind of cut my teeth on those stories. Yeah, that's definitely the stuff of great novels there. How do you both approach historical stories when you're writing YA, you know, things that are specifically aimed at teen readers? That's a really great question. I think part of it is I want to share my love of history with them. So I try to come up with interesting questions that I myself asked as a teen. I loved what if questions, you know, what if mm-hmm. the Nazis had won World War II? What if the Civil War had gone in a different direction? I remember in Mr. Besher's class, we learned about the Chinese explorer Cheng He and how he explored so many parts of the world, but then the emperor decided to call him back and kind of start this isolationist period in Chinese history. And I always wondered, well, what if he kept exploring and what if China was the one that had discovered the Americas and had colonized the US? It wouldn't have been called the US, right? So I like to kind of take those questions and that's why I write alternate history. I love exploring those those views and perspectives. And it also kind of melds my love for fantasy and science fiction. I start my worlds by planting them in real life history, but then because the world of live in infamy and the only thing to fear is that 80 years after the Axis powers had won the war, I'm able to kind of take my love of fantasy and infuse that in my stories as well and kind of create a whole different world out of it. Well, Caroline talks about that what if. One of the questions that I always think with historical fiction is what would I do? What would I do if I lived then? And that started with actually my first novel, which I thought was going to be my one and only novel, and here I am nine novels later. That was a story called Under a War-Torn Sky, which I'm probably best known for. It's a World War II novel that was inspired by my dad's experiences as a B-24 bomber pilot. And my daddy survived, and my children exist, and I exist because of some teenagers who saved my dad's life behind the lines in France, which was a story that happened over and over and over again. So after I did that novel and was given the wonderful opportunity to continue writing historical fiction, I was a journalist for a long time. I worked for the Washingtonian Magazine for almost 20 years. So I approach historical fiction very much as I did journalistic work, which is to read and read and research and research. And the facts that I uncover in that tell me what to write. But because I'm writing for teens and I'm very aware, also I took the swing into doing novels when my own kids were preteens and then teenagers and trying to learn, you know, these <laughs> wildly long outlines and uh, timelines of world history or American history and humanizing it for them, presenting them stories with which they could empathize and really know what the day-to-day life was like for ordinary people who were presented these extraordinary challenges and choices. So I really try to root it in very everyday kind of experiences. And because it's writing for teens, I look for coming of age stories, choices that teenagers might have to make in terms of what they believe or what they want to participate in in terms of political issues or questions. So I really try to look not only for protagonists who are young enough that they'll still have an arc of growth that teenagers can really relate to. Uh, I've also learned that even when dealing with very cataclysmic events where you have both the worst of human nature, the largest cruelties, 
matched with the most amazing kinds of acts of courage and largesse that even when you're dealing with these horrific kinds of things, you always have to lace stories for teenagers with that little spark of hope that they can make change in the world. Laura, you started talking a little bit about some of the research that you do for your books. And Hamilton and Peggy in particular seems very, very steeped in the real history of Alexander Hamilton and the Schuyler sisters and the American Revolution. Were there a lot of challenges that came with writing a novel that does stick so closely to the real story? Yes, but wondrous challenges. My editor, Catherine Teagan, who is brilliant, suggested that I do something about Hamilton. And at first I was reluctant to because Hamilton has become so sacrosanct now because of the brilliance of Lin-Manuel Miranda and the musical. So I looked for characters who had not had a whole lot of play within the musical. And there, of course, there's Anne Peggy, who is this great tantalizing, open-ended thing. So I had to work very quickly to kind of ride this wave of interest in the revolution and specifically Hamilton. So I actually researched and wrote this book in 10 months, which is kind of insane, because <laughs> but it was a wonderful marathon. So I had to learn so much history very, very quickly. I knew a lot from a past novel called Give Me Liberty that's set here in Virginia with the Battle of Great Bridge. I knew a lot about Virginia, but I hadn't realized how much had gone on in upstate New York beyond the Battle of Saratoga. As soon as I started researching the Schuylers, I realized how much had happened up there, how much was neighbor against neighbor kind of battles, which always present this, you know, this human crisis that's powerful, potent material for novels. I soon learned that Philip Schuyler was George Washington's right-hand man in terms of being a spymaster, and that he ran a special ops operation out of his house. Peggy was there all that time. He was also the chief negotiator with the Iroquois. I hadn't really realized how important the Six Nations of the Iroquois were during that fight in the revolution in upstate New York. So those were all things I had to learn very quickly. But it was so delightful. All these people are fascinating, very emotive and impassioned people. They wrote these amazing letters that I could read through with Peggy. Nothing of hers exists still from that time period, but people wrote a great deal about her, primarily her brother-in-law Hamilton. I discovered that she was called a wicked wit. She was um, clever. She was called a favorite of dinner parties and balls. And she was intrepid from what these scattershot mentions of her in these letters, which allowed me, this is my final challenge, I would say, writing for a young female protagonist during the revolution, you know, it is is a relatively restrictive social situation for women at that time. From what I can tell from Peggy, that did not daunt her at all. And it's a wonderful thing when you can find a real life person who represents female agency and choice and a slightly feminist mind frame factually. So it was a challenge, but a wonderful thing to get into. She was even called a Vanessa by one of Hamilton's best friends, which is a Jonathan Swift character. And it's kind of like a code word for a woman who's really smart, really wants to talk politics and philosophy. And oh my gosh, that she's a little intimidating that way. And he was actually 
criticizing her for that. But it's quite clear that Peggy persisted nonetheless. I remember reading that little excerpt in the piece that you posted on your website right now about her being called a Vanessa, and it sounded like such a compliment, and then you realize, oh, he didn't quite mean it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Caroline, I imagine that there are some challenges on the other side of the equation where you are using history as just a jumping off point in your novels, but really creating a completely different world. Yeah, there definitely are challenges in writing alternate history. I would say the main one is that you still have to root it in real history, so it makes sense to the reader. You can't just start introducing aliens and vampires all of a sudden. It all has to you know, have a cohesive world building. So I definitely have to tip my hat off to Laura because historical fiction, straight historical fiction, or you know, writing historical works based on real life people is, is really, really hard. I faced that challenge with my second book, The Darkest Hour, which is set in World War II in France, and it doesn't have any sort of alternate history element. And it was such a different change of pace from writing The Only Thing to Fear, where I was able to infuse a lot more of my own imagination and world building into it. There's a lot more restrictions that take place when you are writing about real people in real places. But that's also fun, too, if you like doing historical research like I do. But I definitely do have to, you know, salute Laura for stuff like that, because it takes a lot of time and effort and fact checking that with alternate histories, you have a lot more leeway. Laura, like you were saying, you started uh, writing this book when Alexander Hamilton had had so much renewed attention brought to him. And what was it like writing him as a character during this particular moment? It was scary. (laughs) <clears throat> because so many, so many of my readers have this legend built about him already, again, by Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton and Ron Chernoff's writing, too. So I was a little afraid of it at first, to be completely honest. But because my tact and my focus was on Peggy, you know, he is a supporting character in truth that just offers this window into her. And I began with a letter that he wrote to her, which is this wonderfully gossipy, flirty, gosh, I'm in love with your sister and I'm, I'm introducing myself to you so that you can be my comrade in my courtship of her. And the way to do that is that you have to come to Morristown and take attention away from her, in essence, is what he's saying. So by going through his letters, much like the musical does, you... It discovers he has a lot of bravado, he's incredibly brave, he's incredibly intelligent, but there's this vulnerability and insecurity in him, too, that comes out really within his letters. So that helped. As soon as I kind of dove into his letters, I was much more comfortable writing about him. And again, I'm taking a different tact. I'm very much writing about him as the brother-in-law to Peggy, this man and woman who have an immediate affinity with one another, it's clear, in terms of their intellect and their wit and their love of this other Schuyler sister. You know, Peggy is this very devoted, her sisterhood means everything to her. So because he was a foil in some ways to her, it was easier to write about him. But a fascinating character, and I'm really grateful to Lin-Manuel Miranda and, of course, Chernoff and the other biographers beforehand who have introduced him to us. Caroline, thank you. That was so kind of you to say that. You see, I think I find you quite amazing that you can create these entire worlds. I just report the facts, ma'am, basically. (laughs) So I don't have to push my imagination in the same degree that you do, which I really admire. I kind of have to be But the fact-checking, that is... The fact-checking is pretty... There was an amazing fact-checker with HarperCollins on Peggy, and I'm sure that poor woman had a wild month, you know, verifying everything because there was so much to be done. I have to stick in the realm of 
plausibility and what is possible given what facts tell me. And I was very comfortable being able to present Peggy as this kind of bodacious woman because people talk of her being that way. The final comment that I got, which really gave me the green light on going with that interpretation of her, is that there was a woman, an aristocrat, French aristocrat, who managed to escape the guillotine and come to the United States. And she wasn't that impressed by many Americans that she met, but she was by Peggy. And she said that she was amazingly wise in her judgment of both politics and of things. That definitely let me know that I could paint this very intellectual and kindred spirit with Hamilton. And like you said, Hamilton is something of a supporting character in this. So you did do a lot of research into the other characters around the Schuyler sisters and their family and who they were in conversation in regular contact with at that time. Was there anyone else, any other characters that you were particularly surprised by as you were doing this research? Yeah, I was amazed by Philip Schuyler. I didn't realize that he had had such a big role in the revolution. And he is this really loving father. All of his letters that he writes to his kids begin, my beloved child. But he was dealing with the invasion of Burgoyne leading up to Saratoga and just, you know, everything going wrong. I mean, everything going wrong. And he had this incredible spiring, which you'll read about in the novel. So I was really surprised by him. That led me to these unknown characters like Moses Harris, who is this spy who, because of the wonders of online research possibilities now and incredible collections like that at Mount Vernon, I could verify that he actually existed and found amazing anecdotes that he shared with his grandchildren that were published in 18, I don't know, 12 or something that I could get my hands on. So I was surprised by that. I also absolutely fell in love with George Washington because he loved to dance and he loved his dogs and he loved his wife. You know, all these things that are not the stoic George Washington that we know. He's a very human man with a lot of a great sense of humor. Caroline, you had to, for both of your Axis books, you had to imagine what the modern U.S. might look like under Axis control if World War II had turned out differently. In doing that, did you look at any other parts of the world that are living under authoritarian regimes or dictatorships? I did. The first thing I did was I researched, for the only thing to fear, uh, what the Nazis what their treatment was of the different countries that they conquered. They did treat people very differently. For instance, in France versus Poland, they're much harsher in Poland than in France. And so I kind of used that to create a basis of the treatment of Americans under Nazi control. And for Live in Infamy, I kind of drew on some of the college courses I took as a history major about the Japanese overtaking China and you know the rape of Nanking and events like that, the treatment of Korean women. And that also plays into race relations in Live in Infamy because the main character is half Chinese. And as a Chinese American myself, just kind of hearing the nuances of conversation of how my grandmother and aunts would talk about different Asian ethnicities. There's a lot of rivalry between, you know, Chinese people and Japanese people and Korean people. And I I try to infuse some of that into the book because, you know, growing up, I think Asian just gets kind of lumped together. (laughs) But there's so many differences between the cultures and ethnicities, the languages, how we celebrate holidays, how we treat 
others. It's all very different, and I hope that I was able to capture some of that in Live in Infamy. Before we go, I wanted to ask both of you what advice you might have for writers who want to work on speculative fiction or historical fiction. I would say for historical fiction, you definitely need to do the research. Primary sources are fantastic ways to really get the voice of the era, and primary sources are sources that come from that historical period, you know, newspaper articles, oral histories, things along those lines, but also have fun. Writing should be fun. Creating stories should be fun. And we all have those days where, you know, we're knocking our heads against the wall and we're frustrated and the story isn't working and the characters aren't talking to you. You want to give up. But at the end of the day, you know, put it aside if you need to, but come back to it. You know, finish that story. It's calling to you for a reason. Read the footnotes because that's where you're going to find amazing, amazing stuff. And letters, primary documents, as Carolyn was saying. There's a Peggy's uncle, Johnny, for instance, turned into this much beloved character for me, even though he's small, because he kept calling people nincompoopas. And I just love that. And he was evidently quite an outspoken Irish American who sang this great song called Dr. Bones. Also, Peggy has a romance that is based in fact that I tripped up on in one of the letters of Hamilton to Eliza talking a little bit about did Peggy tell you about that she may beat you to the altar because of Fleury? And I thought, who the heck is Fleury? And I found out that he is only one of eight people who was honored with the Congressional Medal of Honor during the Revolutionary War. He is this fascinating person. So had I glossed over all those primary documents if I, you know, didn't read every single scrap that I could find, which takes a lot of self-discipline, I would have missed that incredible little detail. So, you know, just there's a treasure trove in all those primary documents, and that's where you'll really see history come alive and enjoy it. Well, that is a great advice to close on, and thank you both for being here and for talking with us about your books and your writing. You can meet L.M. Elliott and Caroline Tongue Richmond at the 5th Annual Novatine Book Festival, Saturday, March 10th, at Washington and Lee High School in Arlington. For more information on this free festival and the other YA authors who will be there, visit novateenbookfestival.com. And remember to check back here throughout the spring for more episodes of Mason Out Loud. You can find more information on Fall for the Book and our upcoming events at our website, fallforthebook.org, and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again to Laura and Caroline for joining me, and thank you all for listening, and read on. 